Can you hear me? Yeah. Awesome. That wasn't my fault, guys. Uh, a few months ago, uh, my wife and I, we went to visit my older brother in New York. Uh, this was the first time that I had driven to New York. It's about a six-hour drive, and if you know me at all, you know I am not good with directions. Uh, to call me directionally challenged would be a compliment. Um, I am very grateful for the invention of the GPS so when we went to New York, I did what I normally would do, and I put the, the address into the GPS, and I started driving. And after 15 minutes or so, Lauren is looking around. She looks a little bit confused, and she said, why are you driving this way? I don't know. This is where GPS told me to go. I put it in, said this is the fastest route, so that's where I'm going. She accepted that answer. No problem. After about an hour... She looked at me again. Are you sure you're going the right way? Because Lauren was very sure that I was not going the right way. Now, we, we weren't arguing about it or anything. She just was, was concerned that I was driving us in the wrong direction. But I told her, the GPS knows. It's going to get us where we need to go. I insisted it was the right way. <clears throat> I was very confident until we got about an hour and a half into our drive and I started seeing signs for the bridge to Canada. That was the moment that I knew I had made a big mistake. Something went very, very wrong here. And I learned that day that my wife is wiser than the GPS because the GPS, while it will get you where you want to go, it doesn't always take every detail into account. For example... The GPS does not take into account the crossing of international borders. So the GPS wanted us to drive through Canada. It was a faster route to get to New York. However, we did not have passports. If we tried to cross the border, we would not have been allowed. This was not good. So it was the fastest route, but it was not the best route. My wife recognized this early on, and I should have paid more attention when she started asking questions and making comments like, Garrett, you shouldn't be driving north. Like, that should have been a dead giveaway. Uh, but again, I trusted in this GPS. My trust was very misplaced. When we misplace our trust, there tends to be consequences. Now, that day, my wife was very gracious to me. She, did not, she was not upset with me at all. She was an absolute saint about that whole thing, probably because she knew how embarrassed I felt about it. But I turned our six-hour drive with an eight-month-old into a nine-hour drive with an eight-month-old. And that was pretty rough, but we did eventually get to New York. We had a nice weekend there. And on the way back, I didn't even attempt to cross international borders, so I learned from my mistakes. Our passage today is it's going to be in Isaiah chapter 28, and it deals with the leaders of Judah and their misplaced trust. And it's going to explain the consequences of their misplaced trust. And in their context, the consequences were much worse than a slightly longer drive to New York. The consequences were judgment at the hands of God, death at the hands of Assyria. Now, the last time 
that Pastor Brian preached in Isaiah 28, or preached in the book of Isaiah. He preached Isaiah chapter 28, verses 1 through 13. So when Tim told me I could do Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 through 29, I felt like I had to do that. That is the Lord's providence. So we're going to be finishing Isaiah chapter 28. But before we jump in, let me refresh your mind on the first 13 verses. So those deal with the drunken leaders of Ephraim, the leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel. These people, these leaders had ignored the word of God. They gave no regard to the ways of the Lord, no regard to his law. They did only what they desired. And this was the whole people, not just the people, but even the leaders had given themselves into drunkenness and other types of sin. And so God promises the northern kingdom, the mighty Assyria is going to attack you. And they're described, Assyria is described as a, as a raging storm of hail, an overwhelming flood that will bring destruction. And a lot of this storm language to describe Assyria is used again in our passage today. But the fact that Assyria would be overrun, or that the northern kingdom would be overrun by Assyria, should not be a cause of celebration for the people of Judah. It should be a warning. Because what we'll see today is they are at risk of the very same fate. So with that little recap, let's jump into our text, Isaiah chapter 28. And we'll start by reading verses 14 and 15. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. So right from the start here, Isaiah is using some strong language. The the, the word scoffer is, is one of the strongest words used to describe the wicked. It's the exact opposite of the wise, if you are familiar with the book of Proverbs. A scoffer is not merely a person who disobeys the Lord, but a person who revels in disobeying the Lord. They delight in it. A scoffer mocks those who seek to do what is right. Several years ago, there was a, a YouTube challenge. Some of you guys are probably familiar with this. It was called the Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit Challenge. So in Matthew 12, Jesus says that the only sin that won't be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I don't have time to explain that, Pastor. We're not going to get into what that does or doesn't mean, but this challenge that that these atheists were doing on the internet was recording a video of themselves saying the words that, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, these individuals clearly had no understanding of what that really means, what Jesus was talking about, but what's clear here is the arrogance with which they seek to disobey the Lord. They found it amusing. They enjoyed it. They prided themselves in disobeying the Lord. They reject God. They reject the idea that they need forgiveness from him. That is a scoffer. A scoffer doesn't just disobey, but they take pride in doing it. And these are the kind of people that are leading Judah, leading God's chosen people, men who mock the Lord and all of his ways. So Isaiah writes to these these people, And tells them that that judgment will come on account of their scoffing and foolishness. He said that Assyria will come as an overwhelming whip or an overwhelming scourge. Uh, 
the ESV uses whip here, and, and I really don't know why they use the word whip. Uh, the word can be translated that way, but we use the same word down in verse 18, or Isaiah uses the same word down in verse 18, um, and, he tra- and we translate it as scourge, which is like a sudden burst of water, a flood. And I think that sticks closer to the storm language we've seen um, to describe Assyria. But either way, the point is that Assyria is coming, and it will be overwhelming for the people of Judah. So Judah and Israel were not exactly friends. They fought on many occasions. If, you, if you're familiar with the book of Kings or book of Chronicles, you know that. So Judah has, has now seen Assyria destroy the northern kingdom, one of their enemies. But they know that it's only a matter of time until Assyria turns that aggression on them. So these leaders, they, they try to be proactive. They try to devise a plan to make sure that they are protected when Assyria comes knocking on their door. And this plan that they concoct is what Isaiah called a covenant with death, a, an agreement with Sheol. Because these leaders, their plan was to go down to Egypt, make a pact with them so that Egypt would be their protector. They knew Assyria was way stronger than them. Assyria could destroy Judah like it was nothing. But Egypt was very powerful. So they wanted to make a bigger ally so that Assyria would think twice about coming and attacking Judah. Now the leaders of Judah would not have called this agreement a covenant of death or covenant with death. But Isaiah sees this agreement for what it really is. Judah thinks they have acted wisely by making this agreement, but all they have really done is made a covenant with death. Death. They have guaranteed their own destruction. And they've actually rejected the one who could offer protection from Assyria. That's the irony here. They already had a covenant with the Lord who promised to protect, to, to give them what they needed. He could guarantee their life if only they would trust him and follow his ways. And the Lord had done this countless times for this people in the past. But instead of trusting in the Lord, they put their trust in the wicked rulers of Egypt. And by rejecting the Lord, Judah has now sinned against him. Instead of fleeing to the Lord for shelter, they have found shelter in the lies of man. Isaiah is telling them, you think you're wise, but you have not saved yourself. In fact, you've guaranteed your destruction because your refuge is a falsehood. It's a sham. Egypt will not keep its promises. They will not be there for you. They claim they're your friend, but they will offer no protection. Their words are meaningless, empty lies. You have placed your trust in falsehood. You have made these lies your foundation, and there will be consequences for your misplaced trust. The Lord promises this judgment on Judah for their sin. But this message is not only a message of coming judgment, it's also a message of hope. Keep reading with me in verse 16, and we'll read through verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and water will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. 
For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his work. Strange is his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. I don't know about you, but that is not the message I would want to receive from the prophet of the Lord. If you were here last week when Tim was preaching in 1 Peter chapter 2, then, then some of this response should be familiar to you. Because 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 6 is a quote from this passage. But in 1 Peter, he recognizes Jesus as the cornerstone. And we know that to be true. And while this passage clearly points forward to Jesus, we also need to understand it in the context of Isaiah. So in Isaiah's context, is there something specific that is being referred to here as the cornerstone, as the foundation? Now, there have been a large number of suggestions as to what uh, the immediate audience of Isaiah would have understood this to be. Some would say it's the temple. Some would say it's the law. Uh, It's Jerusalem. It's the Davidic monarchy. It's the remnant that God is keeping for himself. And there are many, many others. If you open up a commentary, you will find plenty of options here. But I think that, that any one of these is a little bit too narrow for what Isaiah is talking about. Because we need to keep in mind the issue at hand here. The issue at hand is that Judah has trusted in human schemes and leaders rather than the Lord. So this cornerstone, this firm foundation, I believe, represents all that God has revealed of himself to his people. Those who put their trust in God would not be in haste. That means that they would not panic in the face of trouble because they would find rest and peace in the shelter of the Lord. Now, Assyria was a a vicious people. They were brutal. I mean, worst of the worst. They they loved violence. They were known for for creating the most painful and violent ways to kill and torture their opponents. They decorated their houses with images of slaughtering their enemies. They were a violent people. But even with the threat of the vicious Assyrians, those who trust in the Lord would not panic. Panic. They would find rest in the shelter, in the rest and shelter in the firm foundation of the Lord. So, what Isaiah is calling the people here to is to let go of their misplaced trust in Egypt and turn to the Lord. That is where your trust belongs. And I think that message rings true for us. We can read this and understand the application is not to put our trust in anything else in this world, but to trust in God alone. If you're taking notes, that would be point number one, trust in God alone. Because that is where we will find true security. Trusting that God would honor his promises and being obedient to his voice, that would ensure that it would go well for the people of Judah. That was the promise he made to them all the way back in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, if you will obey my voice, you'll be You'll be blessed. Your enemies will fall before you. You will triumph over your enemies. But if you ignore my voice, if you do not follow my ways, the Lord said he would set his face against them. 
Their enemies would kill them. Their enemies would rule over them. But Judah doesn't trust in those promises. They scoff at the Lord and his ways. They believe that the Lord is not sufficient to protect them. They would rather trust in the words of wicked men. And these scoffers will panic when Assyria shows up at their doorstep. This is foolishness. It's easy for us to recognize the foolishness here from the people of Judah. It's harder to recognize our own foolishness. So we must look inwardly as we study a passage like this and ask ourselves, what are you trusting in? When you see trouble on the horizon, where do you turn? Where do you look for shelter? Where do you place your trust? There's an economic recession coming. Inflation is through the roof. Is your trust in your bank account? Is your trust in your job, your career? What happens if you get fired? What comfort, what security will your career offer you then? If the markets continue to crash, what, what comfort will your investments have to offer you? Would it not be far wiser to trust that the Lord will, will meet our needs as he has promised? As we already mentioned earlier, this is an election year. The midterm elections take place next month. There are many issues in our state, in our country that need fixing. There are many important issues that will be influenced by those elections. We heard of one of them this morning. But if your trust is in a politician, if your trust is in a political party, the schemes of man to fix the problems, then you have run to a shelter of lies. Your shelter is built on a flimsy foundation of falsehood. It may appear to hold for a time, but eventually it will fall flat. But on the other hand, if your trust is in the Lord and the Lord alone, you have no reason to worry. Whether it's an economic recession, lying politicians, or or a vicious nation trying to attack you, even if things get as bad as they possibly can, there is peace and security in the Lord. Because we know that in his time, the Lord will return. He will set things right. Put your trust in God. He is a firm foundation, an unshakable refuge. That's what Isaiah is telling the people here. He offers the protection, the comfort that you want. No man or any other created thing will offer you the security that God has already promised if you would submit and follow him. There is salvation in the Lord. No earthly problem will change that. To trust in the Lord leads to salvation, to security, to peace. But those who trust in man, they will not find security, but judgment. And God promises that this judgment will be both just and righteous. That's what he's saying in verse 17. He said, I will make justice the line and I will make righteousness the plumb line. So the line and the plumb line were uh, tools of of measurement for for building and architecture. And the language is used later in Isaiah again to, to describe the way that God will rule and reign in his millennial kingdom. But here, uh, it, it characterizes the way that God will measure Judah. It characterizes the way that he will dole out his judgment on the people. 
So God's judgment, while not enjoyable for the one underneath it, is always perfectly righteous and just. Judah and its arrogant rulers will be judged for their own sinfulness. They don't get to point the finger at God and say, how could you do this? We were your chosen people and you brought this disaster on us. They don't have that right. They have rejected God. They have placed their trust in the nations, ignoring the voice of God, trusting the voice of man. Any judgment that befalls this people is on themselves. As we've already seen, the Lord's method of judgment here is the nation of Assyria. It says that a great hailstorm will sweep their refuge of lies away. Uh, an overwhelming flood will, will, will break, again, or break down the shelter that they have built on the promises of wicked men. And this storm language is the same language used in the first half of the chapter. But the Lord has provided a firm foundation, a perfect refuge in himself, a trustworthy shelter that can never be toppled. And now, because Judah has rejected that shelter, that foundation, the Lord will use Assyria to make sure that any other shelter they seek will be utterly crushed and swept away. Any trust that is not in the Lord will be crushed and swept away. Isaiah writes that the covenant with death will be annulled, that the the agreement with Sheol will not stand. Judah will soon realize that Egypt is all talk. Egypt is not going to help them. You have built on a shelter of lies and falsehood. And Isaiah writes that you will be beaten down by Assyria. You will be thrown to the ground and they will trample you underfoot. And this beating is not a one-time event. This is not the kind of storm that you can weather and wait out. My wife and I and the rest of our family recently had to wait out a storm on our trip to Florida last month. Despite what people might tell you, the middle of a hurricane, not the best time to vacation in Florida. Not ideal. Now, we did have a good time still. It was great hanging out with the family. I got to hot tub in the middle of a hurricane with like 70 mile an hour winds. That was a crazy experience. But if you're going to Florida, I would suggest waiting till there's not a hurricane. And as the, the hurricane was approaching, I think all of us had thoughts of, of maybe we should go. Like, are, should we stay? Is this going to be that bad? Then the airports all shut down and so did everything else. And at that point, we were kind of stuck. There really was no option to leave now. This storm was coming. Uh, All we could do was batten down the the hatches, hunker down, wait for this storm to pass. And it did. Nothing major happened. There was some terrifying wind. Um, Some minor water came into the the house that we were staying in. But nothing major. We waited and we weathered the storm. This is what Judah thought they could do to Assyria. They could sit. They could wait. We have Egypt in our back pocket. And we can weather this storm. Assyria, they may come and make their threats. They may do some minimal damage. But ultimately, do they really want to provoke Egypt? They're not going to do anything too severe. They're going to recognize that we're friends of Egypt, and they will leave us alone. But Isaiah says you are not getting off that easy. They will attack. They will trample you down underfoot, and they will return over and over, and they will keep trampling you and keep beating you down, morning by morning, by day and by night. Judah will continue to be beat down by the nation of Assyria. And the Assyrians kept 
very detailed historical records, uh, specifically for their military conquest. And we know that their military employed a strategy of repeatedly attacking. So they would send their larger force to, dis- to destroy and, and plunder a city. Uh, and then over time, they would continue to send smaller forces back. That they would, and they would continue to plunder those cities, continue to attack and kill the people. That way, the city could never recover. They could never get back on their knees. They could never get back up on their feet and resist and get organized. They would just keep coming. They were vicious. So Isaiah is telling them that what is coming for you on account of your misplaced trust and your scoffing is so much worse than you're anticipating. Don't presume that you can withstand this storm because not only will you be knocked to the ground, you will be repeatedly kicked over and over so that you cannot get back up. This was not the kind of storm that Judah could weather and wait out. This storm would overwhelm and ruin them. And as the people understand Isaiah's message, they will be terrified. And what they thought would give them comfort will offer them no such thing. Verse 20 uh, is probably a common proverb in Isaiah's day. Uh, But but essentially he's saying that your pact with Egypt is like a bed that is too small. You got no room to stretch out on it. You can't fall asleep because you can't get comfortable. You will find no rest in that bed. There's no comfort to be had in a blanket that is too small to keep you warm. So they probably would have known this proverb, but also this is life for those who do not trust in the Lord. You will not find true rest. You will not find true comfort or security. Now, as far as judgments go, a a bed that is too short and a blanket that's too small might not sound all that bad. But let me tell you from experience, it is that bad. I know this because my wife and I, for the first three years of our marriage, we had a full-sized bed. A full-sized bed... It cannot have been intended for two full-grown adults. There's no way. It it simply is not big enough. And when you take into account the fact that that my wife will talk, dance, punch, kick, jump up and down, do jumping jacks, all in her sleep, it makes it that much harder to sleep on that small of a bed. And when we were were young, and I I was like, oh, I don't want to wake you up. You look so cute. Okay, you you can push me off the bed. I'll sleep with one foot off. It's okay. I'm much older and wiser now. I would hit her with the pillow till she goes back to her side. But we have since upgraded. We don't have that problem anymore. But it was hard. I did not sleep many nights because the bed was simply too small. And this is the bed that Judah has made. And now they have to lie in it. But when we get to verse 21, the judgment is escalated even further. It becomes far more terrifying than the vicious people of Assyria. It says that the Lord will rise up as he did on Mount Perizim and in the valley of Gibeon. And he will rise to do a strange and alien work. Mount Perizim and the valley of Gibeon were the locations where God delivered decisive victories for his people. At At both of those locations... He had delivered the Philistines into the hand of David. At at the Valley of Gibeon, he had delivered the Ammonites into the hand of Joshua. That's where he made the the sun stand still. These were decisive battles in Israel's history. Now, these locations at first to us come off pretty meaningless because we don't know these places. But the people of Israel, the people of Judah, would know exactly where these are. This 
would strike fear into their hearts. They're aware of these battles. They're aware of the way that God worked for his people. But this work that he's about to do is strange. It's alien. Because he will not rise to fight for Israel like he did previously. He's going to rise and he's going to fight against them. For all of their history, the Lord has been their strength, their deliverer, their protector. But should Judah continue to trust in falsehood, he will no longer protect them. In fact, he will actively seek to fight against them. That is a terrifying fate. But again, this is not unfaithfulness on God's part. It is judgment on Judah's own unfaithfulness and sin. God has not changed. God will act against his enemies and he'll continue to do that. The problem is that Judah, by rejecting God, by by trusting in the nations instead, they are positioning themselves as one of God's enemies. If the thought of Assyria strikes fear into the people, the thought of the Lord himself rising to attack you should be utterly terrifying. But despite their unfaithfulness, God still desires that they would repent. And that's Isaiah's point in verse 22. He says, therefore, do not scoff. Judgment is coming. Can't you see this? Stop your scoffing while you still have the chance. Repent now because judgment is delayed. But God will not delay that judgment forever. There will come a day when the chains grow too tight. When you are stuck with the, with the consequences of your choices. That judgment will come and the time for repentance will be over. Isaiah is urging them to repent so that they may escape this judgment and their fate at the hand of Assyria. And if we were going to continue in the book of Isaiah over the next three chapters, you would see that this is actually what they do. They heed Isaiah's warning. You'd see that that they do humble themselves and repent. King Hezekiah leads the people to trust not in Egypt, but they trust in the Lord for deliverance, and the Lord delivers them in spectacular fashion. So they are spared at the hands, spared from judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. But soon after, again, they would fall uh, under judgment for their sinfulness, and they would fall to the nation of Babylon. But church, we would do well to heed Isaiah's warning here. The Lord will always deal mercifully with those who humble themselves before him and repent. If you don't know him, if you have never put your faith in Jesus, repent while you have the opportunity. That opportunity will not last forever. Let's read the last seven verses here. Verses 23 through 29. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So Isaiah 
opens this next section uh, with an address that was commonly found in wisdom literature. And that means that the leaders of Judah, they would understand what he's drawing from. They would understand what he's saying. He's saying, hear my voice, listen to my words, pay attention because what I am saying is important. And he goes on to share a brief parable about a farmer. Now, anytime you get farming analogies in the Bible, people will try to find all kinds of meaning in every little detail. This example is no different. If you open up a commentary, you're going to find that probably most of them We'll, we'll take the approach of, of saying that, you know, the farmer represents God and his, his plowing, that, that represents his judgment, but he won't do it forever. And the crushing, he's judging, but he's not going to do that forever. And there, there's all these different things that they, they slot in here. Um, but I, I don't think that gets at the heart of what Isaiah is speaking of. So, again, I found that most commentaries took this approach, but, but my problem with this is it, it just doesn't make much sense to read it this way because verse 26 tells us that, God is the one instructing and teaching the farmer. So if that was, if we take that other approach, that this is representing God and his judgment, then you have a parable about God, teaching God about God's own method of judgment. That doesn't make very much sense to me. So I think to read it in this manner misses the idea that Isaiah is getting at. So let's try to walk through this and unpack this a bit more. He, he starts with a rhetorical question. Does the farmer plow his land continually? No, absolutely not. That would be foolishness. Does he continue day after day to just plow the field and never plant crops? No, once the land has been plowed, he must sow the seed. If the farmer did nothing but plow his land repeatedly, nothing would grow. He would starve because he would have no food. He would be a terrible farmer. And even the sowing as well is done in a very specific manner. The smaller seeds, like dill and cumin, they are scattered around, but the wheat, the barley, they're planted in specific, even rows. And then the emmer, another type of wheat, is planted at the border. It functions kind of as a crop line or a property line. There is a wisdom to farming. There's a wisdom to the natural order of things. And God is the creator of that natural order. God is the source of that wisdom as well. God's one that determined how farming ought to work, the best ways to do that. So God can be credited with teaching this farmer the best methods for planting crops. And likewise, God is also responsible for teaching the farmer the best method of harvesting and threshing the crops. Now there's a few different tools he mentions here. There's the, the, the sledge, the cartwheel, um, uh, and the, the threshing flail or stick, he calls it. You could use the, the sledge. Um, it was basically a big sled. It had rocks or, or metal bits on the bottom, and you drag it over your crops, and it would separate the kernels uh, from the husks. Same thing with the cartwheel, only you drag it with your horse or your livestock. It's a wheel with metal or rock, and it breaks up the grain for you. You also have that little stick. You could choose to beat them out by hand. But again, even in this process, there is a wisdom behind it. You cannot use whatever method you would like on any type of crop. If the farmer were to drag the threshing sledge over the smaller grains like the dill or the cumin, the crops would be destroyed. They would not be usable. He needs to use the threshing flail, the small stick. Those ones need to be done by hand because they're smaller and more fragile. Now with the larger grains, you can crush it with the cart or the sledge, but even then, you can't do that forever. You can't keep threshing that grain because if you do, you'll ruin it. It will not be usable to make food. 
And this also comes from the Lord, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So if this isn't a metaphor for God's judgment on Judah, what is the point of this? Well, if you're looking to become a farmer, there's some great practical tips for you. But I think we find the point of this parable in verse 26 and verse 29. This parable consists of two paragraphs, and the ending of each paragraph has has a distinct focus and emphasis on God's wisdom. Verse 26 says, he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The point here is to trust in God's wisdom, that God's wisdom is trustworthy. That's point number two if you're taking notes. The wisdom of God is trustworthy. The wisdom of God is trustworthy. God's wisdom means that he always makes the best course of action. He is perfectly wise, so we know that whatever he asks of us, even if it means trusting in him in the face of a vicious enemy, we know that he is asking us to do what is best for us. The farmer follows the counsel and wisdom of God. He knows how to farm correctly because of the counsel and wisdom of God. Isaiah is comparing the farmer to the leaders of Judah. The farmer is wise, not because he's a brilliant person. He's wise because he has trusted the counsel of the Lord. He trusts the wisdom of God, and that will lead to life. His crops will grow. He will receive the food that he needs. But the leaders of Judah have rejected the counsel of the Lord. Instead, they've trusted in the foolishness of man. And Isaiah is telling these leaders that trusting in Egypt for protection... It is as stupid as a farmer who does nothing but plow his field and never plants his seeds. It is foolishness. He's saying you are as stupid as a farmer who threshes his crops to the point of ruin, leaving himself with no food and to starve. If even the simple farmer can trust in God's wisdom, why can't the leaders of God's chosen people do the same? Church, I think this is a powerful warning for you guys. Your trust should never be in your leaders. You should trust your leaders, but they can never be the foundation upon which you build your life. It was the leaders of Judah that led the people astray. Don't assume that your leaders will always do what is right. Test what they say according to the scriptures. Test their actions according to the scriptures. Follow their lead only so far as they're leading you to be faithful to God's word. If I or your other elders and leaders are encouraging you to place your trust in anything but the Lord, we are unfit to be your leaders. If we encourage you to live in ways that are inconsistent with the wisdom of God, we are not fit to be your leaders. Do not listen to that advice. Get rid of us if that is what we have come to. The peasant farmer who trusts in the Lord is wise. But here, the educated leader that trusts in man's devices is a scoffer and a fool. Faith in God and his wisdom was a cornerstone that Isaiah was calling Judah to build their lives on. That's the major thrust of this passage, to trust in God and his wisdom alone. 
That's the big idea of Isaiah 28, 14 through 29. Trust in God and his wisdom alone. Now we know as New Testament believers, as I said earlier, this cornerstone was pointing forward to Jesus. First Peter makes that very clear for us. Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. He is the clearest revelation of the wisdom and the trustworthiness of God the Father. Jesus is the cornerstone, the firm foundation. So the question, again, that we need to ask ourselves, on what foundation am I building my life? Even as Christians, this is an important question because it is very easy for us to take our eyes off of Jesus, to allow ourselves to put our trust in lesser things. Are you trusting in the lies and falsehood of man for peace and security and comfort? A life built on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ will never fail. It can never be toppled As 1 Peter says, whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. There will be no disappointment for the one who believes in Jesus Christ. Even through life's hardest, most difficult circumstances, no matter what that looks like, in Jesus you will find rest and comfort and security. And to those who have never trusted in Jesus, you can pursue all that man says is good. You can give your life to that pursuit. But come judgment day, what you have built will crumble and you will be cast into the lake of fire, judged by God for your lack of faithfulness. Your trust in man's ways, in man's wisdom, will prove as useless to you on the day of judgment as Egypt was for Judah against Assyria. Just as Isaiah warned Judah to repent while they still could, I urge you to do the same. If you have never taken that step, if you have never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, do that today. Because we don't know when that opportunity will end. It might be today. It could be 10 years from now. It could be 50 years from now. We don't know. What we do know is that you have the opportunity now Repent of your sin. Let go of misplaced trust. Place it where it belongs, in the precious cornerstone, the firm foundation. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the firm foundation that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that that no matter what is going on in this life, as bad as things may get, there is peace and security that is found in you. And Lord, help us to guard ourselves from trusting in the lies and the falsehood of man. Let our trust and our hope be only in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the great salvation that you have made possible for us. And if there are any in here who have never trusted you as their Savior before, I ask that your Spirit would convict them, that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that their eyes would be opened and that they would see that there is no firm foundation other than Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.